Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Yes, so we'll be reading this morning in Revelation chapter 20, uh, reading verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we have gathered to worship you corporately by the proclamation of your word, I pray that that sin would be revealed, that hearts would be pierced, when our minds and our thoughts would be focused upon you and not on ourselves, Lord. And that you would be glorified in and through all things this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, good morning. So uh, here we are toward the end of the book of Revelation, just a couple chapters to go. And hopefully by now uh, you have caught the undeniable truth that the whole point of Revelation is not to give us a newspaper, but to declare that Christ is King. That is the overarching, screaming out loud, heralds and trumpets point of the book of Revelation. And I love chapters 19 and 20, because it, it, it like declares with the power of a thousand atomic bombs, Jesus is King. These are two incredible chapters. And I want to read and have us look at, uh, beginning in chapter 19, so hopefully you've got your Bibles with you. And looking at chapter 19, uh, beginning uh, with the very beginning, verse 1, it says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then again in verse 3, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In verse 4, the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And then verse 6, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And, And Pastor Matt talked about this last week. And it's interesting, chapter 19 is 21 verses. And four times in those 21 verses, Hallelujah. That's a lot. Hallelujah. And as he pointed out last week, uh, a couple weeks ago, hallelujah means praise the Lord. 
And it's interesting when you look at what God is being praised for, what they're saying, God is worthy to be praised for this. His salvation and his judgments, as we see in verse 2. And as the smoke goes up from those that he has destroyed, praise the Lord that for his judgment. And the, the four 24 elders and four living creatures saying, as God is being praised for the smoke that is coming up from his judgment upon the world, they say, so be it. It is true. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then that last hallelujah. For the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. So it's telling us unequivocally, without any debate, that God, our King, is worthy to be worshipped because of his salvation and his judgment. His salvation is perfectly merciful, and his judgment is perfectly just. And then that last hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Then, picking up in verse 11, uh, I'm, I'm going to focus on verse 11 all of chapter 19 through the rest of chapter 20. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. All right, kids, who do you think this is talking about? God? And in this case, it is, begins with a J and ends with an Jesus. Jesus, yes. This is talking about Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus, that he's on a white horse. He is ready to go to war. He is preparing for war. And then in verse 14 it says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So here is Jesus on his white horse, ready to go into battle, and behind him are the armies of heaven. And it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then down to verse 19, it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And after a massive battle between the two armies, is that what it says? Here, all the kings of the earth and all of their armies are all gathered together to wage war against Jesus the King. And what happens? The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. 
So here's Jesus on his white horse, getting ready to lead his armies into battle against all the kings of the earth and their armies. And then we see here, Jesus didn't have his armies there to help him fight. Did Kids, do you think Jesus needed help? No. It says, how were all the armies and all the kings defeated? By the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Now, before you think that like Jesus is a mutant X-man kind of guy with like this sword coming out, throughout scripture, the word of God is spoken of as a sword. That it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And in John chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus is the word. And so when it talks about a sword coming out of its mouth, while it might make for a cool picture in your head, what it's really referring to is the power of Jesus' words. That by his word alone, every king, every army was defeated. He didn't need the help of the armies of heaven. So why were they there? To see the glory of their king manifest. To see their king prove to every other king there is, to prove to all of the armies that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Because think about it, did Jesus even actually have to be there to beat them? No. He didn't really even have to actually be there. But here are all these kings thinking, there's Jesus, let's take him. And there, in front of all of the armies of heaven, in front of all these kings and their armies, Jesus displays the absolute truth that he alone is king of kings and lord of lords. And it's interesting that later on in uh, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, he says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. I always thought it was interesting how uh, in the passage right before that, you have all the kings of the earth, all of their armies gathered there, And Jesus personally gets on his horse and defeats them by the power of his word. And right after that, here we see Satan. Now, you know, the world has long portrayed Satan as like second only to God. When it comes to power and authority, Satan, you know, you've got God and then Satan is right there. That Satan is this powerful ruler with all this authority, that he's the ruler of hell, and that he is so powerful that he can challenge God himself. And I love that in this passage, God doesn't even do it himself. He just sends an angel. He just sends an angel. Here, all the world for most of history has thought, ooh, Satan is this big baddie, and and make no mistake, he is an angel. He is a powerful being. But he's not comparable to God. Satan is not the opposite of God. We often think of Satan and God as opposites. 
to be opposite, you, just have, you have to be on the same level as a thing you're opposite to. There is no one opposite God. There is no one who can challenge the power and majesty of God as an equal but opposite. Satan is not opposite God. He is just a created being like everything else. And, and God shows that here when this big baddie of all history, the greatest enemy of all mankind, God says, why don't you go chain him up for a while? He doesn't even do it himself. And we may ask, why? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. Because God doesn't say. So if we say, well, God did it because of this, that's pure speculation. All we know is that in this instance, you know, with the armies of the kings, Jesus personally took care of it. With Satan, he just sent an angel to take care of it. Now we could speculate it was to show that, to prove to Satan, you want to challenge me, but all it takes is one angel at my command. And what we see here is this. All of the devastation, all of the death, all of the sickness, the, the curse of sin upon us, it is all under the sovereign hand of God. Satan has no power or authority apart from what God allows. Just as Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, do you not realize that I hold the power of life and death? Do you not realize that I can put you to death? I have that power. And Jesus' response was, you would have no authority if it were not given to you from my Father who is in heaven. And we see that here. What the world considers the most powerful being next to God, when it comes time and God says, enough, all it takes is God command, God's command and an angel to bind him for a thousand years. God is sovereign over everything, and everything that takes place in our lives is under his sovereign and loving hand, which means that, that nothing in our lives is a cause for fret, is a cause for worry, is a cause for doubt. Now, we're still going to have those times. But throughout it all, we know this. When it comes time at God's command, everything happens according to God's command. The book of Job, the book of Daniel, the book of Psalms, all of them talk about how God has a purpose and there is nothing and no one who can change that purpose of God. And in that, we can rest, regardless of what's going on in our lives. So we see Jesus displaying before all the kings of the world that he is king of kings. We see God displaying that even the one who's considered the most powerful after himself really has no power apart from what God allows. And then in verse 7, it says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
So first, we see all the kings of the world and their armies arrayed. And Jesus rides in, and by the authority and power of his word, he defeats them. Then we see Satan bound by God simply sending an angel to do it. And now we see all the armies again gathered against the saints in the city of God. And this time God just says, enough. And in my head, how many guys have ever seen Braveheart? You know, in, in any movie really where the, the leader gives that, you know, that pep talk, oh, you know, and I can picture all these armies arrayed. And I picture them like in Braveheart, because that's just how I picture. So all these armies are arrayed against the saints of God, and they're beating their swords against their shields. Ho, 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 ho. And God says, you guys done yet? You guys got the city circled? You, you good? You, all right. Boom, and they're gone. I love that image. That when God says enough, all of the pep talks in the world aren't going to get you what you want. All of the armies of the world will not get you what you want when God says enough. And so I, I just love that progression through these things. At first, Jesus is there personally. Then God just sends an angel, and then God just says, enough. All of it progressively pointing to the undeniable truth that he is sovereign ruler. He is sovereign king. He doesn't need armies. He showed us that by defeating all the kings and the armies of the world on his own. He doesn't even need a group of angels. He doesn't really even need an angel, which he proves to us when all these armies are amassed and fire destroys them all. God doesn't do things because he needs us. He doesn't use us because he needs us. He uses us because in his mercy, he gives us the privilege of taking part in his mission. And then he gives us the privilege of seeing his glory displayed when that mission is fulfilled, when his purpose is fulfilled. God doesn't need me to do anything. But he chooses, in spite of who I am, to use me. And God doesn't need me, but in his grace and his mercy, he wants me, which is an even bigger mystery to me. I mean, looking at myself, if I were going to choose somebody and say, I want you to be my child, I'm not the one I would have chosen. God doesn't need me, but he wants me, and then he chooses to use me. Try to comprehend as much as humanly possible as we can the incredible privilege that is ours. God doesn't need you, but oh, he wants you, and oh, he wants to use you for his glory. What an incredible thing it is to be a part of the body of Christ, to be part of the bride of Christ. So throughout this, God has displayed that he is sovereign ruler. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He has displayed his power. He has made it known he doesn't need us to accomplish his purpose, but we have the privilege of being a part of it. We have the privilege of seeing his glory displayed. But he has shown us he is 
king of kings. And then we get to verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. There is no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Then another book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what, is, what was written in the books according to what they had done. And, you know, this passage ends with, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. John MacArthur calls this the saddest passage in all of Scripture. Uh, the most tragic passage in all of Scripture. And I actually kind of disagree with him. To me, the saddest passage in all of Scripture is when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that was on my behalf. To me, that's the, the saddest, but also the most incredible passage of Scripture. But I can see why John MacArthur would say this is the saddest. This is final judgment. There are no other chances. This is it. Uh, and, and I love, uh, it might have been last year or the year before, Pastor Matt talked about how God is not the God of the second chance. And I love that. Because God knows that we're going to screw up the second chance just as badly as we did the first. He is the God of grace. He doesn't give us more chances. He gives us himself. But now here, there is no more of that. There is nothing else after this except an eternity in the presence of God and love and hope or an eternity in the presence of God's wrath for all eternity. That's what we see here. And a lot of people don't like this passage because we know God, God is a God of love and this passage doesn't fit in with that. We also have to understand God is a righteous judge. And when we read this passage, we find that God is judging the unrighteous as they have always wanted to be judged. You know, he judges them according to their own desires. What are those in desires? To be judged on their own merits apart from any interference of God's grace. I'm a pretty good person. I don't need Jesus. I'm, I'm a good person. My, my good works will outweigh my bads. And God says, if that's how you want to be judged, then that is how you will be judged. And that's what it says here. Uh, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is why there is no basis for anybody to ever cry foul when it comes to God's judgment. Nobody can ever say, well, that's not fair. No. People who have rejected God are being judged according to what they really wanted. To be judged on their own merit apart from God. He is giving them exactly what they've always wanted. To be judged on their own merit. Uh, and people say, well, that's not fair. What about people who never heard about Jesus? Well, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to whether they had heard about Jesus. It's not what it says. It says they were judged according to what they had done. 
They were judged according to their own works, their own actions, and their own merit. They are condemned to hell because of their own sinful choices. It's the consequence of their chosen actions. Uh, and again, if you think that, well, if they'd have heard about Jesus and coming judgment, they, they probably would have repented. Revelation 9, verses 20, 21 say this. And this is after God has poured out judgment on the earth. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which could not see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And again, in chapter 16 of Revelation, verses 8 through 10, we read, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So we often think, well, if people really knew of the judgment to come, yeah, they'll definitely repent. Even in the face of God's poured out wrath, they did not repent. And in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, when the rich man said, well, you know, let me go to my brothers because if me, you know, they know I'm dead. If I come to them and they go, oh, wait, you're dead. Surely they'll listen to me. And Jesus is like, no, they've got the law and the prophets. If they won't listen to the truth, they're not going to listen even if a dead guy comes back and tells them. All throughout Scripture, we see this truth, that repentance is not because we're smart. Repentance is not because we got a clue. Repentance is not because we connected the dots and went, oh, that's probably the best idea. We see that clearly here as God's judgments are being poured out, and people still won't repent. Think about in Jesus' day, all the people who who saw so many miracles. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says something that, well, that sounds pretty, that sounds rough. When he says, you know, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. And it says, this was hard for many to hear. And John chapter 6 says, and from that time, many of his disciples turned away and followed him no more. These are people who had followed Jesus, had seen his miracles, had listened to God the Son himself speak. And yet when something kind of hard came along that Jesus said, they turned away and followed him no more. So again, that's why it is completely just and fair when God says, I will judge you, not according to whether you heard about Jesus. I will judge you according to to your actions. And when, you know, some people are like, well, but don't you think the people in hell are now sorry for their sin? Possibly, yeah. Or Romans 3, or Romans 2, 3, 3, 5 says this. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? Talking about being judgmental about people who are in sin. Yeah, you're judging them, but you're doing the same things. Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's loving kindness leads you to repentance? What is it that leads us to repentance? God's loving kindness. Not because we're smart and all of a sudden we get it. In Acts eleven eighteen, we read this. Uh, now, in Acts 11, this is when they're, they're reporting back to the Jewish believers that even Gentiles are getting saved now. And it says, when they heard these things, these things that you know, Gentiles are now getting saved, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 26, God says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So when it comes to repentance, we don't do it because we're smart, because we've connected the dots, because we've seen something that nobody else has. It's because God in his grace has granted us that repentance. And it is through his loving kindness that he does that. But when it comes to the lake of fire, when it comes to hell, they are cut off from the loving kindness of God. There is nothing about being in hell that will draw them to repentance. In uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 7 verse 10, it says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief or worldly sorrow is that sorrow that says, I got caught, now I'm going to suffer consequences. Yeah, I'm sorry I did it. That is the only kind of sorrow that will be in hell. Will they be sorry for their sin? I'm sure they will be. But it won't be a godly sorrow that leads to life because that possibility is now cut off. That opportunity is no more. All they will be left with, if anything, is a worldly sorrow that says, I shouldn't have done what I did, and these are the consequences for it. No repentance, no godly sorrow, no more chances to get into heaven. And so God is, again, perfectly just in his judgment on sin with an eternal judgment. Uh, And because there is no true repentance, uh, Russell Moore says this, Hell is the final handing over of the rebel to who he wants to be, and it is awful. The sinner in hell does not become morally neutral. We must not imagine the damned in hell displaying gospel repentance and longing for the presence of God. They, they do not in hell love the Lord their God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Instead, in hell, one is now handed over to the full display of his nature apart from grace. And this nature is seen to be satanic. The condemnation continues forever and ever because the sin does too. In other words... The, our actions, our sinful actions, are simply the display of a heart that hates God, is in complete rebellion to God, and completely rejects God. 
And as a result of that nature, that hostility and rejection and rebellion against God, their actions reflect that, and those actions are then judged, and they are condemned to hell for eternity, where there is no repentance, which means their rejection of God, their rebellion against God, and their hatred of God continues. Their eternal judgment is just because their sin is eternal in scope. They will be just as rebellious and rejecting of who God is in hell. All the while, I'm sure, suffering from a worldly sorrow that wishes it was different. But they don't wish that it was different because of who Christ is. They just wish it was different. And make no mistake that it is an everlasting consequence of sin. Matthew 25 says it's an eternal fire. Matthew 3 says it's an unquenchable fire. And Daniel, it says that there is shame and everlasting contempt. Mark 9 says the fire is not quenched. It says that there is a place of torment and fire, eternal destruction, that the smoke of torment rises forever and ever, that it's a lake of burning sulfur where the wicked are tormented day and night forever and ever. And then Jesus compares eternity, eternal damnation to eternal life. He says that the wicked will suffer eternal damnation just as the righteous enjoy eternal life. So the only way you can say that hell is temporary is if you say that eternal life is temporary as well. Because Jesus says there's eternal damnation and there's eternal life. So we can rest assured this is forever. This is forever. And one of the big arguments against an eternal hell is that it doesn't fit in with a God of love. It doesn't fit in with a God of love, uh, which is one of my pet peeves when people say that about God. Um, language is, is funny. And how many of you guys know that words have... <laughs> syllables. Words have meaning. Uh, how many of you guys have ever heard the phrase, I could care less? How many of you guys have ever said, said, oh, I could care less? You actually said the exact opposite of what you meant. The phrase is actually, I couldn't care less. Because if you could care less, that means you actually do care, and you could care less than you do. So the actual phrase is, I couldn't care less. Uh, or how many guys have ever used the word supposedly? Or the phrase supposed to be? I love it when people get those phrases mixed up. It's, it gives some hilarious word pictures in my head. Like, oh yeah, they were supposed to be jewel thieves robbing a bank or something. Oh, they were supposed to be? You mean it, it was required that they do it? They were supposed to be doing this thing? Or do you mean supposedly they were robbing a bank? In other words, they think that they were probably the culprits. So I love it when those it, it, great word pictures. But just to prove words have meaning. And sometimes it's innocent, really doesn't matter, and you know exactly what the person means when they say, oh yeah, they were supposed to be robbing a bank. We, we know what they mean. But when it comes to God, I want us to be careful in how we speak about who God is. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Greek goddess Aphrodite? She is the goddess of love. She is the goddess of love. Goddess of love. In other words, she exerts control over uh, how love affects and how love works. And she was actually a very immoral goddess, by the way. Um, but she didn't create love. 
She didn't define love. She was just the goddess of love. Love was a completely separate concept, and she just kind of helped orchestrate how it was put into play. But love was this completely different concept. That's the goddess of love. Love is something separate, and she just kind of works according to what love is. And that's why I say God is not a God of love. And the Bible never calls him a God of love. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He's not the God of love. If I say Mike Drake is a man of integrity, what I would be saying is that there is this concept called integrity. And Mike, through his actions and his words, lives up to this this concept of integrity. In other words, as long as he lives according to what we consider integrity, he is a man of integrity. But as soon as he doesn't, well, no, he's no longer a man of integrity. See, it's all about whether or not he lives up to the concept of integrity. So when we say God is a God of love, we make love this separate thing that God is now beholden to. We, we measure his actions and his words according to the concept that we have of love. But now when we say God is love, it's no longer some separate concept that God has to live up to. It is now God who defines what love is. And how does he do that? Through his words and his actions, regardless of how we think they fit in with our concept of love. If God's words and actions don't fit in with our concept of love, then we've got the wrong concept. It's not God who's doing the wrong things. It's us who have, we've got the wrong concept concept of love when we look at something like this where God throughout scripture makes it clear that there is eternal judgment for sin and we say a God of love would not do that you're probably right a God of love probably wouldn't but the God who is love would because he said he would therefore this fits in with God who is love it's the same with justice He is the source of justice. Therefore, if he passes judgment, it is, by definition, just because he is the one who passed that that judgment. We've got to get out of our heads that God has to live up to some concept that we have. And instead, let God define who he is as revealed through his word. To say a God of love would never send somebody to an eternal punishment is actually an incredibly arrogant statement to make. Because what that statement says is I have such a perfect, unflawed understanding of love that I I can declare that somebody who is loving would not do that thing. And I've talked to lots of people who have made that statement and I've asked them that question. Do you have a perfect, unflawed understanding of love? And all of them have been honest and said no. And so the next question is, then how do you know a God of love, using their terminology, would not do such a thing? That's their answer. 
we've got to stop trying to fit God in with what we think he should do. And instead, understand that if God says he does it, then it is something a loving God would do. It is something a God who is love would do. So don't worry, I'm not going to throw a rock at you if you say God is a God of love. I still say it every now and then because it's so ingrained in us. Uh, So I'm not saying it's sinful, but I I do want us to have an understanding at least of what that means and how it actually impacts how we relate to other people, how we view God, how we view his actions and his words. So again, if you say God is a God of love, I won't take my swords off the wall and come after you. But it is something for us to be aware of that using the world's terminology often leads to the world's uh, experiences and the world's results. Let's define and express who God is as God reveals himself to be through his word. And then another argument uh, against this is that it, it seems unjust that God would condemn, condemn somebody to hell for all eternity when at the most they sinned for what? 70, 80 years, and now they're condemned to hell for an eternity? Just, I mean, compared to an eternity, 70, 80 years isn't, isn't much. That seems unjust. And that statement actually betrays a very low view of sin and actually a very low view of God as well. Uh, I think it was Destin last week uh, who was talking about how the the punishment or consequence of breaking the law actually increases according to who your offense is against. Uh, if you guys came up and somebody here came up and punched me in the nose, well, I wouldn't like it, um, but what would be the consequence? I don't care, I might jump on you. And, but, but now if you walked up to President Biden and punched him in the nose, yeah, that the level of consequence increases as the level of the person you have offended increases. So let's put this in perspective. God. Joe. God. Joe. And yet we would say, oh, yeah, if you punch the president, whoa, But if you sin against an eternally majestic, glorious, holy, righteous God, really? That's the consequence? See, that's why I say it's a low view of sin first. Because it's saying sin isn't that serious. Remember, it's not just about the actions. Sin stems from a rebellion towards God. So it's a low view of sin to say sin isn't so serious as to require that level of punishment. But it's also a low view of God to say God isn't so incredibly worthy of all worship that sin against him is that bad. But when we read the book of Revelation, man, the worship, the way they go on and on ascribing Glory and honor and power and blessing and thanks to our God. That should be a big flasher that yes, sin is eternal, an eternal offense against an eternal 
God. That if there is any being in this universe who deserves never to be sinned against, it is God. So when you get to the level of a perfectly holy, perfectly glorious, eternal God, then your sin has earned a punishment as eternal as the one you have sinned against. Especially considering that that open hostility toward God will continue throughout eternity as there will be nowhere found for repentance in hell. And understand this, there are no innocent people in hell. Because God says, I'm going to judge them according to what they had done. And we know God is perfectly just. So if God says what they have done merits an eternal damnation, then you know what we can trust? Sin is that bad. And our God is that majestic. What is your view of God? Is it so high that you see the justice of an eternal consequence because of an action committed against him? The one that all of creation says, worthy. But so many people say, not so much. My sin's not a big deal. When it comes to the great white throne judgment, which this passage is often called, says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. And the book of life is spoken of a, a few chapters before. It says that it's uh, the book of life of the lamb who was slain. In other words, it's the, the book of life of Jesus. So this is what is incredible here. Those who are not in Christ are going to be judged according to their actions. Those who are in Christ are going to be judged according to Christ's action. You're going to be judged. You'll either be judged according to your own works, your own actions, your own words, or you will be judged according to Christ's work on your behalf. And then judgment. And as we have seen through chapters 19 and 20, he is king of kings. There is no one above him. There is no one to appeal his judgment to. There is no one who can turn his hand or his purpose in judgment. We saw it as Jesus wiped out the kings and their armies. We saw it as one angel bound Satan for a thousand years. We saw it as God destroyed the armies of the world by simply sending fire down. There is no one who can thwart his plans or his purposes. And there is no one who can stop his judgment or escape his judgment. Except through Christ. When it comes to escaping judgment through Christ, it's because of his finished work on the cross. And it's because God has brought you to a point where you can look at your sin and truly understand it is that bad. My sin is that bad. 
And God is that incredible. And you come to a point where you realize, I don't want to be who I am anymore. I've been reading a book, and in the book he talks about how our, our world says that the, the pain that you go through in accepting who you are is a good and right pain, and it shouldn't be rejected. And he says, but you know what? Myself is the only thing about me God wants to fix. The world says, no, don't, you don't need to fix yourself. Just as painful as the process may be, accept yourself. And yourself is the only thing about you God wants to change. He wants to change you to be more like Jesus, not more like yourself. So, coming to a point where you realize my sin is that bad, God is that good, and I need a Savior. I don't want to be who I am anymore. I don't want to be a rebel against God. I don't want to be an enemy of God anymore. But because of self, I can't change that. I need Jesus. I need his grace. Only then will I ever not be who I am, but who God has called me to be. That's those whose names are found written in the book of life. And and I don't want this to come across as uh, a hellfire brimstone sermon, even though in actuality, it is. And I don't want to come across as trying to scare you into heaven. Although, if this doesn't scare you, then I got to start over because you weren't listening. But the reason that we say sin is so horrible isn't because sin in and of itself is bad, it is because it is an eternal offense against a righteous, holy, God, a God who deserves our worship, not our offenses. That is the motivation of salvation, that God is not being worshiped as he deserves, and I want to be one of those who worship him in such a way. So you've got two books, one that records your work and one that records the work of Jesus on your behalf. I don't know which one you're going to be judged by. That's between you and God. But between you and God right now, which one is it? There's no escaping the judgment of God. And there is also no loss of your name ever being in the book of life. In other words, when it's there, it's there. It's an incredible thing that God would take all of my sin, all of my actions, and judge them according to what Jesus did for me. And then put my name in a book that can never be erased. Where are you finding yourself this morning between you and God? Is your name in the book of life? Or are you ready and willing to be judged according to your own actions. Again, it's between you and God. If you'd like to, to talk more about it, I'm here, Pastor Matt is here. There, there are plenty of people here who would love to talk to you more about it. But again, understand, there's no escape. He is a just judge, and he says in Ephesians, or Exodus 34, he will by no means 
let the guilty go unpunished. But he also will by no means ever betray or be unfaithful to the work of his son on the cross on your behalf. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to what Jesus did on the cross, and therefore he is just to forgive you for all your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your infinite grace and mercy, you sent your Son. And that in your infinite grace and mercy, you called me, opened my eyes to the truth when I would have closed my ears and closed my eyes to the truth, left up to my own devices. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your salvation. I thank you that as the body of Christ, we can worship you as you deserve to be worshipped. Father, I thank you that the times we, we do sin, that there is forgiveness, that there is repentance. And Father, I pray that in the lives of those here this morning who are yours, that their lives will be marked by a willingness to repent, a willingness to come to you, Father, confessing our sin a willingness to walk in the forgiveness that you offer. Father, I pray for those here this morning whose names are not in the book of life. God, extend that same grace to them. Open their eyes to their great need for you. Open their eyes to their great love for them. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will even now begin to prick their hearts over their own sin. That they will see sin for what it truly is, not just some bad things they've done. But, Father, eternal offenses against an eternally holy and righteous judge. Help them to see the reality of their own sin. Father, I pray that this morning, that you will find us truly, truly, looking at your word to shape our beliefs and our ideas, Father. Not, not our desires, not our likes, not what the world says, not our own preconceived ideas. But, Father, we will look to your word to see how you reveal yourself. And that we won't try to make you fit some preconceived ideas of what we think you should be like or what you should and should not do. And Father, we know that that in itself is a work of grace in our lives. You say in 1 Corinthians that we don't understand spiritual things because we're smart. We understand spiritual things because your Holy Spirit chooses to reveal the truth to us. Father, I pray that you'll do that with your word. You reveal to us the truth of who you are and the truth of how much we need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.